Artistic Whispers Productions presents. Antithesis Book One, Predestination and Other Games of Chance. A podcast novel written and performed by J. Daniel Sawyer. Author contact information at www.jdsawyer.net. Featuring the vocal talents of Aaron K. Baladinian. Ryan Levy. With original music by Danny Shade. This story contains harsh language, sexual situations, and graphic violence. Listener discretion is advised. And now... Episode 2. Hi, this is T. Morris of Podcasting for Dummies, The Billabub Battings Mysteries, and The Moravy Saga. You can find out more about my podcast at www.imaginethatstudios.com. You're listening to J. Daniel Sawyer's Antithesis, Book 1. And this is the story so far. In orbit high above the Earth, space station Sidon circles lazily, a Las Vegas in space. A man traveling as Joss Kyle has just breached customs with his false identity. On his way to the freedom of the outer colonies, he stops in at the Port of Call Bar to play poker with Alex Hart, a card shark whose reputation stretches from Luna City to Los Angeles. What Joss Kyle doesn't know is that Alex Hart is really a bounty hunter named Alyssa Hartman, and she is waiting for someone, a defector with top-secret information that could destabilize the solar system. She and her husband Jim have carefully created Alex Hart and staked out a likely stop on the defector's escape route. They think that Joss Kyle could be that defector. After losing the poker game to Joss and convinced that she's been cheated, Alyssa has returned home for the evening to unwind. The hardest part of this is remembering who she is. And now, Episode 2 of Antithesis, Book 1. The faux marble bounced the luxurious sound of indoor rain into a frenzy of steam and heat. The orgy of water on her naked skin moving over, under, between, in every crevice and over every pore made Allie grip for the handle on the shower wall to steady herself. She stood under the firm stream letting the revitalizing moisture blast her face clean. The scent of apricots and roses teased her nostrils as the oil in the gathering bath rose to meet her. Washing Alec's heart away, like she did every day, letting the character slough off like a layer of dead skin, letting go the perfection, the poise, the masculinity. She ran her hand over her breasts and between her legs to remind her that she was still a detective, still a hunter, still a lover, still a woman. Still herself. The flat, mannish cut of her fingernails was the one thing she couldn't get rid of, and she resisted the urge to grab a file and shape them so they matched her curved fingertips. God, but her back was tight. A year of sitting for hours a day, dealing cards and studying faces, being someone else. She missed the time when detective work entailed more than sitting. Used to be that there were people to tail, lab work to do, reports to prepare, things that would keep you in shape. 
Now she had to spend her Sundays and her evenings trying to keep her body from becoming that of the middle-aged man she portrayed. Her sinewy muscles fought against atrophy as she stretched under the scalding rain, her body trying once again to remember how to bend like a woman's. The bath water crept up her calf, starting to drain out the overflow valve, and the shower automatically cut off. Allie continued her stretching, moving her arms, torso, back, and legs as if breaking out of a chrysalis. Her shoulders were a little looser, and her limbs had been restored at least to a semblance of their former suppleness. But her back was still tight. How many times had she done this? How many days of trying to reclaim herself without losing her sanity? How much more effort could she pour into keeping the two selves from merging before she lost track of which was which? And how long before the freshness and the pleasure palled? She lowered herself into the hot water and turned on the jets, and lost herself once again in the movement. Time, trickling away like water, flowing down the drain and leaving her long lazy limbs exposed to the open air. Time caught up with timelessness. Allie pulled herself softly to her feet and called for the dryer. Hot air blasted her from every angle, tickling every hair on her body, blowing away the last of the moisture and the artifice. She was finally herself again. Jim cocked his head momentarily, his practice reflexes registering a change above the bubbling of the stove and the pounding of the antiquated rock and roll on the music service. Something? Ah, yes. Allie had finished with her shower and the dryers had come on. Well, she would have to wait. The magic he worked in the kitchen was a sacred ritual on which none should intrude. He haphazardly tossed together a dozen spices, seemingly at random. Tarragon first, then pepper, rosemary, and some assorted off-planet leaves. With differing gravity and soil chemistries, the needs of off-planet agriculture had given the geneticists room to play, developing new herbs with new flavors to stoke the juices of foodies everywhere. Before his days in culinary school, Jim would never have guessed the amazing variety available to an off-planet chef. It was one of the few consolations of living in a hermetically sealed petri dish. Jim tried to let his mind wander, letting his hands make up the recipe as they went, a sort of chicken stroganoff, which would shortly wind up as the filling for a savory pie. His father once told him, The best way to kick off a weekend is good dinner, great wine, and spectacular sex. And he'd been right. Jim recited poetry aloud to his culinary creation as he nursed it along the road to greatness. He thought of Allie as he'd seen her in the hallway and tried to believe the thrill in their lovemaking still came from delight rather than desperation. As if he could even know who she was anymore. Coasting through the mechanics of his wizardry, Jim did his best to avoid the thoughts that had plagued him for the last six months. Thoughts about Allie and Alex. How, day by day, she wasn't the same woman she had been. Like the man she played, she seemed to be turning cold at the core. She had lost some of her buoyancy and acquired a fine steel edge on her personality. Then again, maybe it had just uncovered something that had started years earlier during that business with his brother. Things hadn't been quite right after that. No. It had been okay till they'd taken this job, he was sure. The pastry consistency was wrong. Too much butter. 
Jim turned the sample over in his mouth for a moment and then spat it into the sink. He let his mind wander again as he relaxed and let his talent cook by itself. It had to be the job. There was too much watching, too many broken hearts and tempting tarts walking through his bar in the last year. The change in Alley was difficult enough. He was changing too. And he was tired. He hated the waiting, the sitting around, only one day a week to spend with Allie and not her alter ego. He hated the smoke and the cheap booze and the beer and the gin made in ramshackle vats and stills at the other end of the station. Price to sell, it moved through his hands at a rate that would make a cockroach vomit. The rest of the goddamn station could go to hell too, if it wasn't hell already. Transients wafting through like a rotting wind, staying long enough just to drop some money or spend a night, only to be on their way again. Canned air, recycled water. Not that he'd done much exploring. The time he spent at the bar was all-consuming, and what free time he had was split between sorting through suspects and marital upkeep. No marriage should have to go through this. The sauce needed just a little more kick. And where the hell was the Martian savory? Jim turned his head slowly, scanning the shelves for stray spice bottles. Where did he go? Blaming his frustration on the missing herb, he slammed his fist into the counter. Ah! God damn it! The restrained scream tore itself from his throat as he struck the bottle in question and bruised his hand. A hell of a day. No prints. Not a single one on the whole damn card. No DNA fragments either. Had he been wearing gloves? Allie closed her eyes and looked again at her mental snapshot of the man. No? He'd taken off his gloves when he sat down. In fact, he'd nearly leered at the feel of the cards between his fingers. So why weren't there any fingerprints? There wasn't even a trace of grease to show the treacherous queen had been touched and then wiped. The card was totally clean, no matter how many tests Allie ran it through. Oh well. Another day gone and no closer to the solution. Maybe Briggs hadn't jumped planet after all. Maybe another hunter on Earth had caught him already. Mm, no, she decided. If they had, she would have heard. God damn it. A music-muffled scream drifted in from the other room. Jim must be cooking again. His weekly catharsis, stewing all his troubles together in a pan and adding salt. He would lift out of the sour mood when he'd thrown his enemies into the oven and transmogrified them into something tasty. Every week he ended work frustrated and discontent, and every Saturday night he unwound into the man she remembered from long ago. And every week, it was a little harder to ignore what was happening. Oh, he could be a complete twat. Trouncing around the apartment grumbling nonsensically to himself about having to sleep with a man being perpetually annoyed at having to tend bar while she played games all day, frustrated that both his culinary degree and his law enforcement degree seemed to be going to waste, but there hadn't been a choice. It was the perfect ambush. Briggs was a compulsive poker player and a damn good one. They needed to be able to establish a reputation along his likely escape route to draw him to them, and to do that they needed a card player. And Jim couldn't play cards to save a kitten from electrocution. She knew he might as well be bottling baby food for all the interest the assignment held for him. Despite his chipper facade, she could feel him atrophying underneath. She appreciated the effort, but she almost wished he wouldn't bother. 
The last time she'd seen him truly involved with his job had been two years back when they'd run a sting to catch an embezzler. Trent, was it? Sheila Trent. In that one, he'd gotten to play the part while Allie had run surveillance. He was her administrative assistant, and Trent had kept him thoroughly busy processing paperwork and dodging her passes. He'd eventually had to go to her house and avoid her horizontal designs while Allie ransacked her office files for records of off-planet bank accounts. Now this assignment needed to end soon. What both she and Jim needed was a year on Mars, maybe helping with terraforming project or just chasing down cheap hoods. It wasn't glamorous, but it was good, hard work to keep the mind nimble, and exercise to keep the adrenaline flowing. Working for the government looked great on a resume, but it was useless work for useless people. Who gave a damn if a former NSA escaped and jumped planet? Maybe he did know things worth killing for, but there were dozens of people who did and were let go anyway. This one, the US wanted dead or alive. Preferably dead. A man who had spent his career studying national security vulnerabilities of every country on the planet knew how to slip quietly and easily through customs everywhere. Somewhere, he'd learned how to avoid cameras and change his face, disguise his DNA, and generally move through a surveillance society without a trace. Bloodhounds weren't enough. The Senate subcommittee had needed specialists. If Jim hadn't been so damnably patriotic, no, no, it wasn't fair. They both took the job. They wanted the challenge and the prestige, and they wanted to do something meaningful. Fuck meaning. Allie shook her head to dismiss the matter. This was the weekend, not a staff meeting. She hummed a few bars of an old melody and turned to her closet. This was her part of the bargain. He helped pull her out of the role. She helped pull him out of his pit. It was the best they could do. Something sexy, but demure. Silk teddy? Maybe, but no. Too stainable. She could smell the chicken sauce and knew dinner would be messy. After mentally trying on half a dozen items, Allie gave up and threw on one of Jim's button-up Oxfords, fastening only two buttons so that it would fall open when she moved the right way. It was time for dinner. The foot traffic was thick in the marketplace, and the wide space above looked straight across the cylinder to the deep gash in the station's greenbelt carved by the posh commercial district. The crowd noise would have been deafening only one deck down, but here it was delightfully muted by the distant trees and grain and cannabis plants in the garden overhead. Joss sat in the marketplace, on a balcony with a view, and sipped his coffee. Not freeze-dried instant coffee, nor synthetic coffee made from toasted grains and coffee oils, but real coffee. Someone, somehow, had figured out how to grow it on Luna, and top-shelf shops on Sidon got a pittance of imports from Luna City every month. Although shipping from Luna to Sidon was, despite the longer transit time, several orders of magnitude cheaper than boosting the same cargo from Earth, it still fetched nearly the price of 30-year-old scotch. It was a true luxury item. It had been a long time since Joss had the time or the cash to afford a true luxury item. He watched the throngs of people teeming and moving like fish in a school below him and allowed himself a moment's rest. For just a few minutes, he dropped his guard 
and permitted himself to feel imperious. He had escaped. He had slipped past the last of the North American agents, past the last customs port into uncontrolled space. He was free, and he had earned every inch of it. He inhaled deeply over his coffee and gazed up at the green belt, playing games with himself, trying to look up as long as he could without getting the kind of vertigo that an Earth native gets when looking up and seeing ground a quarter mile across on the other side of a spinning tubular space station. He wished he could give himself a migraine doing it so that he could avoid his own ill temper. He tried to tune out the pair of vacationing Brooklynites two tables over fighting over whether Joel Gross or Sam Matson was the better actor. He closed his eyes and pushed his lips together in a thin line of exasperation. With the difficulty and expense involved in getting off planet, he'd hoped that he'd encounter a little bit less inanity in day-to-day life up here. Damn shame it wasn't turning out to be the case. Couldn't anyone tell the difference between real and virtual actors anymore? Debating Matson's acting abilities was like hitting on a computer program. <laughs> Joss snorted bemusedly at the thought. Even that isn't uncommon anymore. Computers were more sanitary and cheaper than actual body-to-body sex, but Joss was old-fashioned enough to prefer the real thing. The problem with the democratic ideal of the West was that the people had to have power to make it work, and the people were a writhing mass of damned idiotic consumers. It was a miracle that the glory of the West hadn't completely collapsed under the weight of the entertainment culture. All he had to do now was to decide where he would stay the night. Somewhere secure, he wouldn't do to have all his hard-earned cash being lifted by a curious gutter rat. He took another sip of his coffee and ground his teeth, wishing he could will his bitterness into silence for just one more day. It was curious, in a perverse way. He was so close to freedom, he'd committed so many crimes just to survive this long, three and a half years of them. The CIA agent who got too close and lost his stomach to a hand towel when Joss interrogated him, the two Yakuza he'd vivisected in a rainforest preserve, and the woman he'd decapitated in an unclean bathroom in Bogota when she tried to ransom him, were the three that stayed with him. But there were also the cons, long and short, that kept him in just enough money to keep going, and using his classified knowledge to slip through one net after another to steal identities from people who no longer needed them thanks to him. They were distasteful, perhaps, but all of them were necessary, and none of them troubled him much at the moment. Today, of all days, he had discovered something profoundly disturbing that was threatening to stop him just before his last jump. Joss Kyle had a conscience, and it would no longer let him go. Until today, he had never cheated at cards. Joss took another sip of coffee and then pushed the mug aside. God damn it. The shuttle left Luna next week for Nineveh and he had to make it. There wouldn't be another Nineveh-Mars jump for 18 months, so he had to get to Nineveh in the next six days. After three years on the lam, running wherever the extradition laws couldn't reach him, long days of poker and long nights of hide-and-seek with Shelley's contractors, he had earned some fucking rest. He had earned his freedom. So here he was, within sight of the end of his run, and his damned conscience decides to assert itself. It was a card game! I needed the money! 
I had to have it to get off this goddamn station. You cheated at cards. You went into that bar for the thrill of a good game. You went to play against Alex Hart, the man who has a reputation from here to Venezuela because you were sick of those easy wins that kept food in your mouth. You wanted a challenge before pushing out into the colonies, and you cheated. You took your chance to beat arguably the best man in the solar system, and you pumped a card. No wonder you're jumping station with your tail between your legs, running away again, you yellow bastard. Run! Joss backhanded the porcelain mug, shattering it on the floor a few meters away. Whatever god invented the conscience to be thrown into the sun. The couple looked up at him and exchanged a glance, then got up and left. They'd evidently decided to settle their differences the old-fashioned way, and were walking across the promenade to an upscale hotel. About damn time. He made a mental note to thank god they were gone if and when he made up his mind if such a being could be troubled to actually exist. Impatiently, he grabbed his hat and threw a dozen credits at the shopkeeper to pay for the damage. Down on the lower levels, hotels were cheaper, as the higher gravity on the outer decks made sleep less restful and less comfortable. A single bed or a sleep locker on the lower levels might run 20 or 30 credits a night, while the same space in the marketplace near the greenbelt could run 10 times that amount. Joss did his best not to shuffle while brooding and avoiding looking at his unnaturally gaunt form in the semi-reflective shop windows he passed. There was a time when he was comfortably overweight, but the years of running had whittled him down to little more than the essentials. Bastards. A man devotes his life to bettering a country, fighting corruption at every turn, and for his thanks, he gets pushed farther and farther outside the corridors of power until a false indictment can be drawn up against him. Oh, politics were supposed to be that way, he knew but he was a special case. He'd come to power by a unique path, as an economics historian come intelligence operative. Foreign policy analysis had been a hobby when he was a professor, and he worked the obsession out in the time-honored tradition of fans everywhere, writing novels about intrigue he didn't have a prayer of sharing. Didn't, at least, until he was tapped by the DDO and offered the chance to turn his hobby into a career. From one appointment to another, Joss had done his best to stay in office, doing what little he could to salvage freedom in a faltering nation. But he had the uncommon failing of an eidetic memory and an aptitude for wielding power without being noticed. He found that a quiet voice spoken with authority did not often need to use the weapons at its disposal. As long as his perfect recall remained his private secret, he'd been fine. But as people learned the truth and connected it with the fact that he had greater access to everyone's dirty laundry than a file clerk in military intelligence, the slide had begun. His mistake had been in sticking around too long, in being right too often. He should have gotten out while he had the chance, let the country rot in its own complacency and corruption. Instead, he'd only gotten out a week ahead of the intelligence subcommittee's indictments. The chairman, Bill Shelley, had good reason to be afraid of Joss, and Joss had not moved against him fast enough. He'd figured it would keep. So he waited until the last year of his term as national security advisor, taken a vacation to Jamaica, and skipped across to Trinidad. South America was the least organized confederation in the solar system, the perfect place to disappear. His quiet disappearance was billed as a defection, and Shelley made a public spectacle that had undermined the presidency, claiming that Joss had sold out to the Persians. All his work to bring down Shelley's support system was erased because he had waited too long. Far too long. So it was South America, with no money and no legacy. South America was a poor confederation, and a lot of people had their hands out. Despite his public posturing, Shelley, or one of his lackeys, 
figured out where Joss really was. They put out a 13 million credit reward for him, enough that even some of the smaller governments were trying to kill him. Since Venezuela and Chile were now part of the Persian Empire, he was forced to hide in Colombia and Brazil. Being a white man in a land of dark men was not a good way to blend in. It had, indeed, been a long road. He didn't want a sleep locker. He wanted a proper room with a shower. He found a cheap motel three decks up from the hull, 45 credits a night. Joss didn't bother to read the name. It was the type of place where everyone looked the same and every bed came with a piece of ass. He paid the clerk and went up to his room, tipped the hooker, and told her to get out. He couldn't concentrate on sex tonight. He had too much planning to do, and he was so angry that he didn't trust himself not to hurt her. He rifled through his satchel in his pockets for a moment and pulled out a dozen assorted scraps of porcelain and metal and tossed them onto the desk. The didgeridoo had served him well, and he leaned it gently against a wall by the door, a present for the cleaning woman. He removed his gray trench and hung it up, taking a half dozen cartridges from a concealed and shielded pocket. He tossed them onto the desk next to the other trinkets. Although he'd wanted a shower, he found himself unable to unwind. He tried to tell himself that there was no reason to bother trying. He should stay on alert, just for one more day. He didn't really believe that Shelley was stupid enough not to have someone on the station keeping an eye out for him. But without a face or a name, they had no way to find him. <laughs> he chuckled as he assembled the trinkets. A spring here, a screw there, slide the bolt in, and... There. An old-style projectile weapon, made in Germany back when it was still its own country. One of the earliest porcelain guns designed for bypassing airport security systems before they instituted backscatter x-rays and passenger profiling. Joss had brought this piece from his private antique collection back home. Back when he'd had a home. He loaded his six remaining cartridges into the magazine. Ten millimeter shells, exploding tips. If anyone bothered him tonight, they'd wind up all over the room. Joss sat on the bed, facing the door, gun mounted between his knees, and shut his eyes. He did not sleep, but he did get some semblance of rest. This was his nightly ritual. You've been listening to Episode 2 of Antithesis, Book 1, Predestination and Other Games of Chance, written and performed by J. Daniel Sawyer. Original music for Antithesis written by Danny Shade and is used here with permission. This episode starred Aaron Balabanian as Allie, Brian Levy as Jim. Some sounds courtesy the Free Sound Project at www.freesound.org. Other sounds copyright 2008, Kitty Nakian and Artistic Whispers Productions. This audiobook was recorded, edited, and mixed at Artistic Whispers Productions in Castro Valley, California. The book is copyright 1997 and 2008, J. Daniel Sawyer, and the recording is copyright 2008, Artistic Whispers Productions. This recording is licensed under a Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial No Derivatives 2.0 license, and all other rights are reserved to the author. And that's episode two. We're halfway through the promised Hooked in Four. Only two more to go. The listener base so far is pretty small, but we're already getting enthusiastic feedback. Chris wrote in to ask whether we were on iTunes, and the answer is not yet. 
We've submitted to the directory, but Apple takes a few days to review things before putting them in the store. But we'll be there soon, and when we are, iTunes links will be going up. We'll also be submitting to patiobooks.com once we hit the minimum five episode mark. Of course, that version will be shorn of this lovely commentary that hopefully you enjoy listening to. So that's a better one for introducing to people you don't think might like my extemporaneous sense of humor. But give me a little while, and I'll have antithesis everywhere. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah. Feedback. Lunar Shadow left feedback for the first episode saying, Based on your first episode, this promises to be an interesting ride to say the least. I look forward to coming episodes. Well, thank you very much. I'm glad you enjoyed the opener. And it only gets better from here. He actually really likes the show because he also left a comment on The Man in the Rain, which, if you haven't listened to it yet, you should. It's set in the Antithesis universe and stars two of its characters, Mondu, who you won't meet for a few episodes yet, and another character who you're already getting to know. It posted as a Sculpting God episode concurrently with the first episode of this series, and I've also posted it to the feed here. This universe has deep roots, and I thought I'd give you a look at it before we dive in. Now we come to the part of the banter where I lay a little trivia on you. Since I didn't start this section the first week, I'm going to start at the beginning of the story with Alex Hart, who still has an appearance or two to put in before all is said and done. Stephen R. Donaldson said in one of his author's notes that all good stories have two elements, one familiar and one unfamiliar, and that the mix of those two elements setting each other off gives birth to the story. It works with sperms and eggs, it works with most good science fiction and fantasy, and it's worked with most of my stories. Antithesis didn't work that way. For Antithesis, it took three threads. I guess that being from San Francisco, where gender can be as fluid as the bay water, it kind of makes sense that I'd need three gametes to make this zygote. And for fluid genders, you can't start at a better thread than Alex Hart. And for those of you who are fans of classic movies... And if you haven't gotten into them yet, I highly recommend some of the old film noirs starring Humphrey Bogart and directed by John Huston or um, Howard Hawks. Fabulous, fabulous stuff. But if you're a fan of old film, from looking at him, you'd think that Alex Hart was a ripoff of the Elijah Cook character from the 30s production of The Big Sleep. Slight build, thin, always stays in the shadow, scary as hell. But I actually didn't make the Elijah Cook connection until years later. Alex Hart came to me from a different direction entirely. He came from a song. The first time I heard the Sting song, Shape of My Heart, it drove me nuts. It grabbed me and wouldn't let me go, and for a few years the song bounced around in my head trying to become something. After listening to it over and over, trying to figure out what it was, I sat down and wrote what became the opening scene of Predestination, just to get it out of my head. I sat down and wrote out the scene almost as it appears here. A scene that describes the shape of a heart. Alex Hart, a card player who doesn't play for the money he wins and doesn't play for respect. When the scene was done, I didn't have anywhere to go with it, so I put it in a drawer and left it for a few years until I ran into the next thread of the tapestry. But that's a whole other story for another time. Keep sending that feedback and please tell your friends. Right now I'm listed on Blueberry, that's B-L-U-B-R-R-Y dot com. Please look up Antithesis there and leave a review. And while you're at it, inflict an MP3 on your knitting circle, your church group, anything. And spread the word. More podcast goodness coming next Thursday, as well as hopefully some more places that it's listed that you can go comment bomb. 
As for next week, will Joss give in to his conscience and try to play another hand with Alex Hart? And with Jim and Allie, what is the truth? Are they a solid team, or are they barely holding it together, just waiting for the perfect pebble hurtling their way to shatter everything in their lives? Find out next week. Until then, remember, it isn't whether you win or lose. It's how you rig the game. <laughs>